Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited about the guests that we have today. We're going to be talking about going from one side of the table to the other. So, uh, you know, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Dan Terran. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So you were uh, born, you know, and raised in between L.A. and New Jersey. So how was uh, life growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Um, it was good. Um, so I, my parents are both from uh, New York City and the New York area. Um, I was born on the East Coast and then we lived in Los Angeles for a few years when I was a kid. So I got lots of skating and surfing in and then um, ended up moving back to uh, a pretty rural area uh, in central New Jersey. So that was a bit of a culture shift um, and haven't really looked back since I left for, for college. So I went to, to school in Baltimore and then I've been in New York since. So what got you involved or interested into, let's say, you know, working in the public sector and urban areas and, and, and issues around them and so forth? Yeah. So I, I like I said, I went to, to school at Johns Hopkins and um, pretty early into my career there, I was uh, introduced to a city council member, a gentleman by the name of Bill Henry, who kind of became my, my mentor in all things Baltimore city politics for my time there. Um, and I just got really fascinated with the city as sort of a microcosm for uh, a lot of problems that exist in the world and and Baltimore in particular had its challenges and I thought it was a really interesting opportunity. Uh, I didn't grow up in cities and so moving to Baltimore was kind of a full-on education. Um, I think prior to that, you know, my family always had a very strong service orientation. So growing up, I spent summers going to places like uh, volunteering on a Navajo reservation of Norfolk in Mexico. And I think my parents were very intentional about exposing me to the need that existed in the world. And um, it's always been uh, sort of my my professional drive to try to apply my abilities to address some of those issues. So so let's talk about you know after doing the um, the Senate campaign, you started working for Aaron Brockovich. You know obviously for many of the listeners, you know that name you know is going to sound familiar. You know someone that uh, that really you know made the uh, headlines. You know made history. You know uh, there was even a movie that was a uh, uh, Julia Roberts, the one that was the main character. Um, you know. Uh, being, you know, Erin Brockovich. So how was that experience uh, of working with, with someone like that? Yeah. So, you know, like you said, uh, after I graduated college, I worked on a Senate campaign in Baltimore. I then moved to New York to take a job at a law firm um, as a paralegal and as a, an organizer working alongside Erin Brockovich. And basically, the law firm had retained Erin to help organize communities that had been impacted by environmental catastrophes. So similar to her experience in Hinckley, you know, there's communities all over the United States that have been uh, uh, somehow affected by corporate polluters, and they don't really understand what their rights are. And so uh, it's one thing for a law firm to show up and say they might be able to get some relief. But when someone like Erin comes um, and shares her personal story, and of course, some of them have probably seen the movie, it really helps to bring to life, um, you know, that there might be relief for people. So um, I, it was a privilege to get to spend a little bit of time with her. Uh, we worked on a on a um, a case in in Duncan, Oklahoma, where uh, Halliburton had allegedly uh, uh, poisoned the groundwater, and that was a case that um, you know I believe ended up settling and getting relief for a lot of people. So it was great to have an experience working with her. 
Now, for you, you know, really interesting stuff here because there's like a shift in gears. I mean, you thought that you were going to be doing law school, and then all of a sudden, it sounds like this experience, you know, like uh, got you to uh, distract yourself or maybe to make a decision against it. So, so what was that thought process? Yeah, well, you know, I mentioned that case in in um, in Oklahoma, and you know, the last time I checked, like a decade later, it was still being settled. So. Um, I think what I saw working in politics in Baltimore and then working um, in environmental law, obviously very early in my career and at a very junior level, was just the pace at which decisions were made and the way decisions were made felt very, one, very slow, but also very arbitrary. And I got the overwhelming feeling that no matter how hard I worked, the outcomes weren't going to always be in my control when you're dealing with, you know, especially entrenched politics in a city and then dealing with, you know, the, the court system, which can be capricious. And I was living in New York. This is like 2010, 2011. And I had friends that worked in startups. And I was really captured by how quickly, you know, this was early days of New York tech, you could, you know, write some code, ship a product and people around the world could use it the same day, and it could change their life. And when I saw some friends have some success with that, I just thought like, that's, that's what I wanted. And I, I wanted to make a change in my career. So tell us about jumping into the startup world, because, I mean, this is a little bit different from what you were experiencing, like the law firms or the uh, politics, uh, where there's like more like red tape and, and, and a different way of doing things. So, so was it like a big shock when, when you started to experience the startup world? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, like breaking into startups in New York, even back then was, was not a small feat. Like I, there is a long list of people who uh, rejected me from jobs in, uh, in startups in, in the New York uh, community. And so everyone from uh, Google to Foursquare to uh, uh, Joe Marchese, who was a good friend uh, who had a company called Social Vibe at the time that then became Truex, uh, Undercurrent, I applied to basically every startup in town and got rejected from all of them. And um, managed to find a startup called Artsicle, which was a marketplace for emerging artists that had just raised money and convinced them to hire me as their first employee. And, you know, it was a very early stage business, basically me and the two co-founders, they had just raised a small uh, angel round. And it really was exactly what I was looking for in terms of uh, a broad canvas to basically be able to take the reins and try different things. I ended up uh, building their artist community, onboarding hundreds of artists in the New York area but also uh, being able to learn product and product design. I found a great mentor um, who taught me kind of basic product design. And I came to the founders and said, uh, you know, I have a vision for what the product should look like and what it should do. And they gave me the opportunity to do that. And then I ended up honing my skills and, and, and for a while worked as a product designer, which ultimately led me to getting uh, recruited at Prehype, which was, was pretty transformative for me. So I think uh, it, I meshed well with an environment where I could have a lot of ownership and a lot would be expected of me. Um, versus an environment where uh, maybe neither of those things were true. And why why did you find it so difficult to get into the startup world? I mean, I was just coming from like, you know, on paper, I'd worked as a community organizer and I had worked as a paralegal. Uh, I also was like 21 years old at the time. I had left college early. Um, and so, you know, who, who was going to hire me? <laughs> so so um, fortunately, I happened to live with a, a very successful uh, photographer who had lots of roots in the arts community. And he actually, he was one of my references that basically helped vouch for the fact that I'd be able to help them build their artist community. So pretty unrelated to the tech was uh, how I got my first job in tech. And pre-hype, you know, you were alluding to it. It was a venture studio, you know, companies like Parkbox coming out of it. And, and for the people that are listening, a venture studio ultimately is where you come up with ideas, you get the teams around it, you get some financing, you know, to get the thing going. And then basically, 
basically you let those ideas, you know, become companies of their own. So how was that experience for you of being able to see so many ideas, seeing, you know, the ones that had legs from the ones that didn't have fair legs and, and some of the patterns behind the ones that ended up being successful? Yeah, so pre-hype was an amazing experience. So I joined at the very beginning, um, one of the, uh, Henrik Werdelin, who was the, the founding partner at pre-hype, um, had just started BarkBox with uh, Carly Strife and Matt Meeker. And so I had the opportunity to kind of have a front row seat and help out along the way with some of the things that was going on at BarkBox, which obviously went on to be a public company. Um, but also pre-hype had a really interesting model where it was a lot of product people and designers um, sort of made up the team. And to keep the lights on, everyone took on corporate venture development projects. So we'd work with big companies to build new digital businesses. Um, I worked with News Corp, Mondelez, Unilever, GE, sort of you name it. And they would hire us to uh, basically incubate a new startup using their assets and distribution. And then if they liked it, they could uh, spin it out to raise venture or they could spin it in and uh, run it internally or they could kill it. Um, and so what that did for me, I'm still pretty young, I was like 23 at the time, had a lot of exposure to just zero to one rapid prototyping, bringing products to market. And I think like the, maybe the biggest learning, I guess two things, we were working with these big companies and I realized pretty quickly that if they were going to listen to me, like a 23 year old designer, like nobody really knew what they were doing. And the, the second thing was, you just have to be willing to kill uh, the ideas that aren't working and move on. And so we cycled through a lot of things. Um, even when I started my company managed by Q, uh, we originally thought we were going to be working with, um, uh, uh, condo and co-op residential buildings in New York. And after six weeks of pitching to them, we realized that it was a pretty miserable customer. Um, and to my co-founder, Simon's credit, we just retooled the deck and completely pivoted the business to focus on office. And I think it would have been a long and miserable road if we hadn't been willing to to kill our idea and uh, and change quickly. So at what point do you realize, hey, after seeing all this stuff, all this innovation, all these ideas, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about this. I'm feeling pretty good about this idea. And then, you know, thinking, hey, I think that this idea is the one and I got to go and, and, and bring this to life, which ended up becoming Managed by Q. Yeah. So um, basically, my co-founder at Managed by Q, Saman Rahmanian, who went on to, find, uh, to found Roe or Roman, the directing consumer men's health business, um, he had been working on this idea sort of... Uh, on his own for a little bit and kind of had gotten to the pitch stage of like this operating system for commercials or originally for residential space. And him and I had partnered on a project for News Corp, uh, which we built a language learning app for non-native um, English speakers, uh, business English speakers around the world. And we launched that in Mexico City and uh, in Brazil. And the business, uh, the, the product had a lot of traction. And we were able to spin that back to, to News Corp. And so it created a little bit of liquidity for, for Saman and I. And so basically, we decided we were going to finish the project with News Corp and start to focus on Managed by Q. And really, uh, it was over the course of probably three or four months that we had this transition period. And we decided if we could pitch to 20 customers and we can get 20 customers to say that we were gonna, they were going to pay us, we would stop everything else we were doing, raise money and do it full time. And when we first went to market, we literally had a pitch deck. Um, so we're basically selling vaporware. Uh, Simon was a very talented designer, so the deck looked great. And um, you know, we were able to sign, um, I think, close to 20 customers to basically let us manage their office for them before we raised any money, before we'd written a line of code, before we even talked to uh, the cleaners. Um, and so that was really, we really went to a, a pretty far extent to validate product market fit and just like demand from the market before we before we threw in 
So then tell us about, you know, what ended up being the business model of Managed by Q for the people that are listening. How were you guys making money? Yeah. So basically the, the vision for Managed by Q was an operating system for, for the built environment for the office that could run the physical space with the reliability of software, which as it turns out, requires a lot of people to do. And so the, we went through a few different business models over the, over the years. Initially, it was a technology-enabled service company. So um, we had a, uh, at, at its peak, close to 1,000 employees doing cleaning maintenance um, on site. And we had a, a stack of software that we built to manage the service operation and to, to manage the client interaction. Over time, we evolved that into a managed marketplace. So we had uh, thousands of local service companies doing cleaning and maintenance, but also IT, security, administrative staffing, basically all of the services that an office manager would manage. And that was being managed on our platform. And we would take a transaction fee. So the office manager would put in a request, would get bids from multiple vendors, um, and they would ultimately transact on our platform, and we would take a, a take rate on that on that service. And then towards the very end, we had built uh, a full set of tools for the office manager. So uh, we acquired a French company that did uh, employee request management, um, vendor management, basically a set of tools for the office manager. And that was just a traditional SaaS business model, recharge a subscription fee. So at the end, think of it as SaaS plus uh, marketplace fees. And how much capital did you guys raise for the company prior to the acquisition? Uh, over the lifetime of the company, including debt and equity, like uh, just under $100 million. Okay. And why would you say that it was so hard to raise money at the beginning for the company? Actually, at the very beginning, we were pretty fortunate through Prehype and through um, Henrik at Prehype. We had a great network of supportive angel investors, even at a time when you know, there wasn't a huge community of angel investors in New York. And many of those people um, are now LPs in my fund. So people like uh, Scott Belsky, who's now chief product officer at Adobe, was one of our early investors. Um, people like Jay Livingston, who's now the chief marketing officer at Shake Shack. Josh Abramson, who had, uh, had founded College Humor. So we had some great angels. We didn't raise a ton of capital. It was like, I think 400K was our first round. And then pretty quickly after that, um, through Scott Belsky, we were introduced to Hunter Walk and Satya Patel, who had just raised their first fund at Homebrew, um, and they uh, they they led our uh, seed financing that you know really changed the trajectory of the company. So I would say early on we had like a pretty pretty blessed fundraising experience. So at what point do you guys encounter that it was a little bit tougher to uh, to raise the money? I think as the business got more mature and like you know reality set in, we had raised early on at very high valuations. And obviously, like we're seeing what's happening in the market today, uh, raising at high valuations uh, can make it much more challenging for you later in the life of the business. So it wasn't really, I think, you know, Series A, we raised uh, pretty easily Series B as well. And then I would say later in the business, um, we'd grown to a pretty big scale, but there was still some figuring out to do on, on the business model and the capital efficiency of the business. And I think ultimately, you know, we the business grew up in downtown New York, and it was we had a worldview that every office looked like uh, the office buildings in downtown New York, which are largely Class B and C unmanaged office space. And I think as we got outside New York, uh, reality set in in terms of how different properties were managed. And so, I think ultimately the opportunity looked a little bit different than we thought when it was just um, you know the two of us and the idea. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. 
And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. At what point would you say that the idea of perhaps, you know, doing an acquisition of the company comes knocking and then walk us through, you know, the different sequence of events that needed to happen for you guys to, to, to complete the acquisition by WeWork? Yeah, so we had we were in market raising for the next round of financing. Um, we had raised a Series C um, at, a, at a pretty high valuation, and you know I think we we were coming to the realization that um, it was going to take a lot of capital to get the business where we wanted it to go, and we had already raised a lot of capital. And you know I had met uh, Miguel McKelvey, who was one of the founders of, of WeWork, a couple of years earlier, actually on a, a charity water trip uh, in Ethiopia. And Miguel had always told me I should come in and meet Adam. And I had, I had met him once um, and I thought he was uh, kind of a crazy person, obviously huge vision, a lot of energy. Um, and you know, as we started to raise this last round of financing, I started to spend more time with Adam and he started to really pitch me on the vision of what it would look like to build uh, Managed by Q and realize our vision kind of under, under the WeWork banner. And obviously this is before the cracks were starting to show at WeWork. And you know, from where we stood, they were super well capitalized. They had a stellar brand and sort of the co-working and, and office space. They were starting to press into uh, this, uh, what was it called? Built by We or Powered by We experience where they would do basically uh, what we were doing for large occupiers. And so we saw a really interesting um, opportunity to kind of complement sort of the WeWork offering where you're in their space and they're managing your space and the Managed by Q offering where you can use sort of this asset light uh, software and marketplace approach to managing any space. And so I think part of it was the, re, you know, the, the writing on the wall in terms of the, the capital markets and looking at potentially like a highly dilutive financing. But also at the time, it just seemed like a really massive opportunity to accelerate realizing our vision on like, you know, the, the greatest scale that we could imagine at the time. So what was the, uh, what was that acquisition process like? Basically, it started almost a year and a half before it happened. So I think like my advice to founders that are, you know, thinking they might exit or might need to exit. Um, you know, businesses are bought, not sold. And if they're sold, it's probably not for a price you like. And, you know, it really requires developing a relationship with the buyer, 
and positioning yourself as sort of the answer to their question. And that takes years of building a relationship and building trust. And so, you know, Adam had made an offer a year prior to the acquisition. Um, it wasn't it wasn't interesting to us. And I think over the course of the next year, um, it became, you know, we continued to execute on our vision. Um, we continued to prove that we were the, the team that he was looking for, solving the problem he was looking to solve. And then ultimately, we were willing to pay uh, a higher price. And then I think also, you know, part of the reason we got such an attractive valuation is at the time, me personally and my management team filled some major gaps um, that were needed at the organization. And so, uh, yeah, it was a it was a long process. And I think like it was really built on kind of building a relationship and, and ultimately figuring out how could, how could we be the answer to their their question at the time. So I believe that the um, that the acquisition was uh, was announced to be about 220 million. Uh, and, you know, of this, there was like different components. Uh, and, you know, obviously, as everyone knows, we work, you know, ended up uh, having a failed IPO, which I'm sure that that affected every single company that they had acquired because they had a really big valuation and they were using stock uh, in order to complete and fulfill those transactions. So how was that for you guys? Uh, how would those events unfold? And and obviously, you know, I'm sure that you guys were disappointed, you know, with the events that were unfolding, which were not the ones that you were promised. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, it's not the outcome that everyone had hoped for. I think, you know, going into the acquisition, one of the things that I was really clear about um, was I wanted to make sure that um, the team that had built the company and helped us to get to where we were, um, that they were not exposed to sort of the the the, the risk that I was taking by uh, choosing to exit. And obviously, stock was a component of it. So I think one of the things that I I'm most proud of um, in sort of the way the deal went down is my employees got paid all cash and they got paid all up front. So anything that happened after that, they were not subject to. And I think that's a big reason why a huge number of those employees still work with me today on the fund, um, whether that's, you know, as collaborators, as LPs, as founders, or as employees within the portfolio. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I personally um, was compensated in a, a large amount of WeWork stock. Uh, obviously, my investor is at the same proportion. And I think fortunately for early investors, it was a big enough exit that everyone still did well. Um, but, you know, obviously, uh, when a company goes through sort of the financial carnage that we WeWork went through and you're holding any of that paper, it's not going to feel great. Yeah. And now, obviously, when the transaction happened, you ended up heading up the a corporate development team, uh, helping with with transactions too, and and obviously you know like I'm sure that you learned a lot, you know, not only from what you experienced, you know, as 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 going through this acquisition with WeWork, but then also leading acquisitions for WeWork too. So, what would you say, you know, have been your biggest lessons learned around M and A? I would say that one of the biggest lessons is at a founder led or like very strong CEO led company, you know, the M and A team. Uh, you know, for smaller deals, they're they're they might be looking for things that are kind of fit to a strategy. But I think often for the bigger deals, um, no matter what anyone tells you, it's like really the CEO um, is in the driver's seat. Um, and if they're excited about a deal, they're going to find a way to make it happen and justify it. And if they're not, it's just not going to happen. And so I think like you know, for companies that are thinking about selling, making sure that you have that strong principle to principle relationship and getting executive buy in is important. And then I think like. The flip side of that is the strategy really matters. And so, you know, I was also overseeing 
uh, Meetup Conductor Flatiron School, a bunch of businesses that had been acquired and, you know, as, um, you know, is, is now well known, those businesses were not a strong strategic fit to the business. And they ended up being, you know, divested for uh, much less than they were acquired for when the business failed to go public. And, you know, that, that M&A uh, can be a very powerful tool for businesses, but it, it also can be kind of a shiny object and cause a lot of distraction and strategic drift. So how do you think companies should think about M&A on the buy side in order to scale much quicker? Well, I think like, you know, there's there are forms of M&A when you're acquiring sort of a direct competitor to to acquire a book of business. Like that's a very different, um, you know, if, if it's really just about growth, that can be very accretive. I think, you know, where it can be very dangerous is when you uh, are using M&A to augment the strategy when you haven't really solidified the core business in terms of, uh, you know, product market fit, strong unit economics, and really understanding how you're going to evolve a relationship with an existing customer versus, you know, acquiring new capabilities to engage a new customer in a completely different motion. Like, I think um, that can be dangerous. And I heard you earlier talk quite a bit about valuation. Um, you know, obviously you were talking about valuation to us. We're thinking about the transactional side and the M&A side. You were talking about valuation, you know, the way that you guys went through it, uh, the way that you had, you know, also the high valuation at an early stage or higher valuations at an early stage, going through those different rounds. Also, what you're seeing now, you know, in the current environment, how would you say that your perspective, you know, has shaped up, you know, around valuations over the course of time? Yeah, I mean, honestly, like I was a perfect example of what I advised founders not to do um, early in the life of my company. Um, you know, I was like 24 when we started the company, I had basically no business experience. And I definitely viewed the higher price tag in the financing as sort of a sign of success and um, was completely blind to the fact that that can be really damaging and limit your options later on in the life of the business if it's not um, rooted in in reality. And I think like, you know, where we are in the cycle now, this is, uh, <laughs> this, this is not a message that would surprise anyone. Um, you know, there's real repercussions when evaluation is not grounded in reality, and it does real damage to a company when that has to be rectified, um, you know, further down the line. I think in my, if we got out by the skin of our teeth at Managed by Q. So I feel like, uh, you know, we managed to sell the business without having to do a down route or anything terribly dilutive. I think in this environment, like, that's just like, that's not happening. And so founders need to be really careful about the about what they're optimizing for in a financing. Um, because I also think that businesses that are trained on capital efficiency early um, have a, just a huge advantage in the capital markets. And what was that, the the decision to leave WeWork? Because that was the immediate you know, event that needed to happen for you to start what you're up to now with Gutter, you know, which is you know, going on the other side of the table, really. Uh, but uh, how was that? How was that process like? At what point do you realize, hey, I think it's time to go? Uh, well, it wasn't much of a decision on my end. I got a, a phone call from uh, the CFO who had just become CEO uh, at about five o'clock in the morning uh, saying, we, we're thinking it's time for you to move on. What do you think? Uh, and, you know, it was it was in line with my expectation. The last piece of work that I did for them was kind of um, putting together some scenarios to divest everything that I was um, overseeing. And so I assumed they would be divesting themselves of me at some point, I would say came a little bit sooner than I was expecting. But um, 
once the uh, initial shock of being unemployed for the first time since I was 14 wore off, like <laughs> it was pro- probably the the best thing that ever happened to me. Because like you said, it's, you know, given me the opportunity to to focus on what I'm building now. So talk to us about Gutter. You know, how did the idea of Gutter, you know, come to mind? Because, I mean, you are an operator, you're an entrepreneur. Uh, and, you know, here, instead of building another company, you decided to build a fund to invest in, in founders. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like I've been doing it for over a year now. So I think the reality is set in that um, I'm running a venture capital firm. But I think um, coming out of WeWork, like the last thing I thought I would be doing was becoming a VC. Um, and I think really the way that it ended up happening was I, my partner, James, and I have been investing as angels since 2017. Um, James and I went to undergrad together. He was doing his master's in um, computer science and machine learning. He had his own startup in the city that failed. And to support himself, he started playing poker on the internet. And he ended up becoming one of the most successful daily fantasy sports player ever. Um, He built a software-driven process to predict athlete performance and player performance and basically took all the money out of the game for two years. So we started investing in 2017. We built a portfolio. Uh, of about 100 angel investments together. And um, we really enjoyed working with early stage founders. We really enjoyed learning about new types of businesses. And so when I found myself suddenly unemployed, um, I was just trying to figure out what to do with myself. And so uh, I started reaching out to some of the companies I'd invested in, um, you know, in particular, where there were mission driven founders that didn't come from the venture industry that I thought had really interesting insights. And I, you know, wanted to be able to help them build their businesses. So um, two of those businesses uh, are in the portfolio now. Uh, one is called Opus, which is a, a training software for frontline workers. Another is called Vicky, which helps restaurants understand their customer data. Um, I basically just started working closely with founders, ended up helping them recruit some of my former team members. Um, and I got a lot of joy out of that. I also felt like we were doing something that nobody else was doing, which was finding people who had a deeply held insight from industry, but didn't have a tech pedigree. And the other venture firms might ignore, but we felt like we could solve that. Like we knew how to build software products so we could bring in those people. And we did that enough times that it just felt like um, something we, one, were really enjoying. Two, uh, from a mission and values perspective, felt very aligned to kind of the impact we wanted to create in the world. And three, you know, when you're building a founding team and putting in all this work in the early days, uh, you don't want to give away those economics to somebody else once, you know, the, the hard early stage problems have been solved. And so, we wanted to put ourselves in a position where we could be uh, writing bigger checks, leading rounds, and being a, a more meaningful part of the company as they evolve. And and in this case, you know, also for the people that are listening, what are the types of companies that you're looking at investing as part of uh, the Gutter investment thesis? Yeah, so we have a belief that the biggest companies that are built today are going to be built in response to the biggest problems facing the United States and the world. Um, we view those problems as affordability for the average American, mostly in healthcare, education, and housing. Second is economic mobility. uh, And third is climate change. The reason that we believe these things to be true is we come from the the Warren Buffett school of never bet against the United States. And if you believe that, uh, you have to believe that we're going to solve these problems because any one of them threatens to undermine um, the United States. And within those buckets, we try to focus on uh, software as a service businesses and uh, marketplace businesses. And that's you know primarily because they are wonderful, efficient business models. And also I have a lot of experience building in them. And you know when you look at what we've actually invested in to date, um, 
We have a really strong thesis around housing. We've invested in a number of businesses to accelerate the supply of affordable housing in America. Uh, we've invested a lot in uh, electrification, um, so things like heat pumps and EV chargers. We've invested in climate mitigation, so uh, uh, waste reduction, um, floodplain management, scope three emissions reporting. Um, so really, it's a pretty diverse portfolio and pretty generalist, but like really the North Star is, uh, are these companies taking ambitious shots on goal to solve the most pressing systemic problems facing the U.S. and the world. And how different has it been to raise money for this fund? Because now you're announcing a $25 million closing to start you know, those investments in companies, which is exciting. But how different has it been the fundraising for this fund versus the fundraising that you were used to as an entrepreneur? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, I had, you know, a lot of success raising as a founder. I had a successful exit behind me. Um, and I thought that we were going to kind of like uh, could sleepwalk into a small fund. And, you know, th th it took over a year to raise. It was hundreds of conversations. Um, and I joke with my partner that if uh, someone had told me in October of 2021 that it was going to be this hard, I might have stayed in bed. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't. Um, but I think like the one thing that nobody tells you is when you're transitioning from being a founder to being a fund manager, um, really, people don't give you credit for, um, <laughs> for having a successful exit behind you. Um, I think like there is a perception that the skills that it takes to be uh, a great entrepreneur are just different from the skills that it takes to be a great investor. And I think that is true in some cases, but for the type of work that we do, I feel like, you know, it's a pretty strong match in terms of skill set. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a long process. It was a lot of conversations. I would say on, on the upside, um, and you probably know this from, from your work as well, when you are forced to pitch a million times and you have people constantly telling you why you can't do it, uh, you get really clear on why you think you can and what your edge is. And I feel like over the course of the last year, uh, it really helped us to refine our investment thesis uh, and to refine what we thought are edges in a market that admittedly does have just a ton of seed funds. Love it. Now, question for you. There's probably a lot of entrepreneurs that are wondering, hey, how do I reach out to Dan and, and perhaps, you know, like share what I'm up to or get my feedback on what I'm up to because what I may be doing, you know, could be a perfect fit with his investment thesis. So what, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, so um, our website is www.gutter.cc, and our contact information is on there. You can also find me on Twitter at DP Turan. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, so yeah, we, we, we love to hear from people. Um, we're a small team, so sometimes it takes us a little bit to respond, but we do make a point to get back to everyone that reaches out uh, with, a, with a personal message. Amazing. Amazing. Well, hey, Dan, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to see you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.